Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1 this morning, and I want to talk about three gifts that everybody needs, especially moms, that Jesus gives. We're going to find them in a very strange place, Matthew chapter 1, the first 17 verses. I won't read them all, and you'll see why. This is the genealogy of Jesus. Now, hang on. Verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Then he goes on down several verses. Verse 5, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Just wanted to throw that one in. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijab, and you read it on down, verse 11, verse 12, and to the exile in Babylon, Jeconium, the father of Shetiel, Shetiel, the father of Zerubbabel, makes you appreciate a name like Tom, doesn't it? <laughs> Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, and then down to verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, be honest, how many of you already checked out after the first few fathers of? This is the part of Matthew and the gospel almost everybody skips over. But if you do, you're going to miss three amazing, valuable gifts that Jesus tucks away in this genealogy. And those three gifts are the gift of identity, that's who you are, the gift of hope, and the gift of rest. And they're all in here, and I want to show you. Let's look first at the gift of identity. If you were going to write a book, and you wanted people to read it, why in the world would you start off with a genealogy? I mean, it's like the cure for insomnia, right? Well, a genealogy was a way to denote the qualifications of a person. For example, back in Jesus' time, if you wanted to be a priest, you had to show in your genealogy you were descended from the line of Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. So genealogies were a way of proving your qualifications. It operates a lot like resumes do today. And just like resumes, you don't want anybody in it that's going to make you look bad. You want people there to make you look good. So in light of knowing genealogies operate like resumes, and knowing that you don't want anything in a genealogy or resume that's a blemish, there are some things about the genealogy of Jesus that are absolutely shocking. First, there are women in the genealogy. Now, you don't have to be a historian to know that ancient genealogies excluded women. Women did not have any status back then. But here in the genealogy of Jesus, highlighted for everybody to see, are five women. Not only are there women in the genealogy, there are Gentiles, non-Jewish people there. That's another genealogy no-no. 
It's kind of like Matthew is a rookie making all these mistakes because he includes Moabites, Canaanites, Hittites, people of despised races in the genealogy. So you don't just have gender outsiders, you have racial outsiders in the family tree of Jesus. You've got political outsiders. And more shocking than that, you've got moral outsiders. Look who's included in his, you ought to start feeling better. Rahab is on this list. Now she's a prostitute in Jericho. That's like having Stormy Daniels on your resume. You don't want that out in public record, but here she is. Tamar is on that list. Now, she wasn't a prostitute, but she dressed up like one in order to sleep with her father-in-law, Judah, so she could have children by him. These are crazy people back here, folks. Now, you just hang on for the ride. I mean, I I hear people talk about how bad it is today. Oh, you have no idea. No, nothing really has changed. And then... Matthew, after doing all this scandalous stuff, he finally mentions David, and we're probably thinking, well, thank God, finally David, David the hero, David a man after God's own heart, David the psalmist, David the king. Well, look how Matthew introduces him. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, Matthew never mentions Bathsheba by name. He just refers to her as Uriah's wife. He's trying to evoke another scandal here. When David was on the run from King Saul, hiding in the wilderness, a group of mercenaries and fugitives and outlaws came to him to join him. And they surrounded David to protect him and fight for him. They laid their lives on the line for David, and Uriah was one of these guys. One day, Uriah's out in battle, fighting in David's army, fighting for David. David stays home. And he notices Uriah's wife taking a bath. He sends messengers to find out who this hottie was and to get her cell number. I'm trying to update this. And this is what the messenger says. Hey, Dave, isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Come on, Dave. You know, Uriah, the guy who's had your back, in the wilderness? Uh, That's his wife, David. That's Uriah's wife, F-Y-I, just so you know. So David, a man after God's own heart, writer of the Psalms, brings Uriah's wife up, sleeps with her, impregnates her, and then arranges for her husband Uriah to be killed. Don't you feel good about sweet David? You know, If you really read the Bible, it's often X-rated, and you'll feel a lot better about yourself. I mean, churches put these people on all kind of glass windows and everything, but they're just as creepy and weird as you, Just just as messed up. And that's the story Matthew wants you to see in this impeccable, respectable, admirable, flawless genealogy of Jesus. I mean, you got Rahab, the prostitute, Tamar, who plays a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law. You got Ruth. She's an outside Moabite, despised race. Bathsheba, the adulteress. David, the murderer. This looks less like a respectable genealogy and more like some scandalous TV show, right? So what's Matthew getting at? 
Simple. The power of the grace of God. Adultery, incest, prostitution, Moabites, Canaanites, Republican, Democrat, Tea Party, illegitimate children, gender outsiders, racial outsiders, cultural outsiders, moral outsiders, coming soon to a church near you. And they're all in Jesus' genealogy. Thank God. And remember, in the Old Testament law of Moses, these people could never enter the presence of God, and yet here they are. Jesus Christ is bringing them in, which means it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what family you came from. It doesn't matter how little or how much you've accomplished. The grace of Jesus Christ can cover you. Be encouraged today. Dr. Tim Keller from New York puts it this way. No one, he says, no one, not even the greatest, does not need the grace of God. And not even the lowest can fail to receive the grace of God. In Jesus Christ, we all sit at the same table. Kings and prostitutes, housewives, princes, male and female, Jew and Gentile. And if you believe in Jesus and you receive his good news, you too can sit right there at the table of the king. I wonder if you ever catch the power of that truth to the degree you understand it, it'll free you from being shamed, condemned, and insecure. It used to be we got our value and identity from our family and community, but we got rid of all that, and now we live in the most individualistic culture in history. We got rid of our assigned yoke of social roles. We didn't like that. We wanted to be who we wanted to be. And the problem is now that our identity and our value is something you have to earn. You have to achieve it. And that redefined our relationship to our work. Before, work was the way you provided for your family, helped them to get ahead. But now our work, our performance, our competency, that's our value. That's our identity. It's our sense of security and self-worth. How we look, hot, buff, the amount of money we make, the type of car we drive, the house we live in, the zip code we live in, the school we graduated from. All those are now metrics of how we define our self-worth. That's sick. There's a writer for the New York Times, and she wrote about how that dynamic has spilled over into parenting. And she says this, parents no longer set up little metal swing sets in the corner of their backyard. Instead, they hire professionals to erect sprawling wooden castles that consume half the yard. Parents line up at 5 a.m. to get a slot in just the right neighborhood preschool and bring their children to specialists upon noticing the slightest delay in speech or motor coordination and to maximize their children's developmental capacity, they flash baby Einstein cards to their three-month-olds. Come on. In a society, she says, that measures status now as an achievement in our grades, in awards, in brand-name colleges, the scramble for advantage is bound to propel us, she says, into overparenting. And overparenting is closely linked to overwork, and it's harder to opt out of than you might think. So now we use our children to jockey for individual status. 
Yeah, he says, we haven't really gotten free. We just switched masters. Because if you let anything other than Jesus define you, it'll bring you down. You will always be on the treadmill of trying to justify yourself. Always haunted by, am I doing enough? Do I have enough? Do people think about me enough? And never feeling you are doing enough. But through the gospel, if you root your identity, not in what you have accomplished, but what has been accomplished for you, if you root your identity in the truth that right now you are loved, right now you are accepted, right now you're enough because you are the beloved child of the king, if you root your identity in that, it'll destroy that treadmill of trying to get into self-justification because your core identity is rooted in something that never changes, never shakes. If you root your identity in anything but Jesus, then when things go south, when things go wrong, you're devastated. You'll be shattered. You'll despair. You can lose your money. You can lose your health. You can lose your hot body. You can lose a job. You can lose a title. You can, you can make a mistake and lose all self-respect. But if I root my identity in who Jesus has made me to be, who he declares me to be, that is unshakable, that never changes. Jesus offers a rock-solid identity that does not shake and a seat at the table of the king. And I don't care what your past is, you can sit beside anybody at the table of Jesus Christ as an equal, anybody in here. Well, the gift of identity. I want to get my identity from who he says I am, then I don't have to perform. Secondly, second gift, gift of hope. Now, like most of you parents, we love our children, and we're infatuated with our grandchildren. But you know, as parents and grandparents, we teach them, don't hit each other, don't lie, share your toys, say thank you, say please. And one of the hardest things about being a parent is that you can do your very best, but at the end of the day, there is no formula to guarantee your kid's going to make wise choices or that your child will lead a wise life. No guarantee. You can increase the odds, but no guarantee. I mean, they are who they are. And I'm like the rest of you. I wish all children came with a remote control. So just before they do something stupid, you could pause and then go fix it. And if they do something cute, you can push rewind and play. And, you know, over the years, I've talked to moms and dads and siblings whose hearts are broken because of the lives of someone they love and the life they're living. It's, it's a mess. I mean, no mom has a kid and says, gosh, my greatest desire, my hope, my ambition for my daughter is that one day she'll become a high-dollar prostitute or she'll end up like Tamar and be labeled as an adulteress. Nobody says that. So what do you do with all this sin and all this messiness and all this chaos that's called real life because it's real? You know what's fascinating about this genealogy? It's not just that Jesus was descended from people who did some bad, sinful things. That's important because it's a reminder and an encouragement to us that in any situation, in any circumstance, no matter how hopeless it looks like, God can break through in the most hopeless situations and the most hopeless-looking people. With God, there's no such thing as no hope. Don't you live under that, that curse that somebody might have put on you. 
And that genealogy shows us a God who breaks through in the lives of prostitutes, who breaks through in broken families, who breaks through in terrible sin. Even in the deepest possible darkness, God's always at work. And when you read this list, this genealogy, don't just see a genealogy. See a map of where grace breaks through. You know, we're looking for good people, and God's just looking for people. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Sooner or later, they all get caught anyway. So it's like, ugh. Sinclair Ferguson is a professor of systematic theology, and he writes about these verses we've just looked at. He says, these verses show us that God is not paralyzed by our past sin, nor is he paralyzed by the sins of humanity. He is able to take those who have sinned grievously and bring them into his great purpose. Hey, there's always hope. God's closer than you think, and he's always at work. Don't you count those kids out. Don't you count that person out. Not, not as long as they're breathing air. God's grace can break through. So keep trusting God. Keep praying for loved ones. And that genealogy points to a fact God is so passionate about redemption and restoration that he came down and broke into sinful humanity to bring salvation. That's a good thing, which means you can be free from the burden of trying to be the Holy Spirit in the life of other people around you. Place your hope and your trust in God because he gives us the gift of hope. And I mean, I'm a parent too, so, and a grandparent, so it's kind of like, well, I pray for them, of course, but uh, the peace I have and the hope I have is that he's at work there too, and he can do a whole lot better job than me, and I'm not going to carry that big burden. I can't carry that. That's a God one, but I have, I didn't mean to say my name. That's a God win. That's a God one. Whatever. Well, that is my name. Anyway. No, no, I know. I know. A little jet lag, I guess. I, the, three, the third point, this is the third gift, the gift of rest. And boy, a lot of moms could use this one. Verse 17. Now, you got to hang on for this one just a little bit. Thus, there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew's writing to Jewish Christians, and they know a lot of knowledge about the Old Testament. Most of us reading that don't. Anyone reading this genealogy in Matthew that had an Old Testament background knew there were not 14 generations from Abraham to David. There were not 14 generations from David to the exile. And there were not 14 generations from the exile to Jesus Christ. All you got to do is go back to the Old Testament, count them. Matthew is telescoping the genealogy to make a theological point. And what's his point? Well, in Genesis 2, it says, on the seventh day of creation, God rested. So the seventh day became a day of rest. The number seven took on a special meaning to all the Hebrews. So the seventh year was known as the Sabbath year, where you're supposed to let all of your land that you're plowing lie fallow so it could rest and be restored. Creation could rest. In Leviticus 25, there is this concept that every seventh Sabbath year, that is every seventh seven years. Are you tracking with me? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's one Sabbath year. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven years. That's two Sabbath years. So he says every seventh seven years, that's 49 years, was the Jubilee. 
And in the Jubilee year, every debt was forgiven. Every slave was free. Everyone that had lost their land got it back. Now, that's a pretty awesome concept, especially if you got credit card debt. It was a celebration of freedom and liberation and rest and restoration. They were to celebrate the Jubilee by reflecting on the ultimate rest God was eventually going to bring, the ultimate freedom He was going to bring, and the ultimate peace or shalom, rest and restoration He was going to bring about someday. This was the Jubilee, and it occurred every seventh seven years. So the prophets foretold one day a Messiah would come and usher in the Jubilee. And he would say these words from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives, release to the prisoners, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that's a prophecy that drips with the language of Jubilee. So Matthew lays out his genealogy in three sets of 14. From Abraham to David, that's two sevens. From David to the exile, that's four sevens. From the exile to Jesus, six sevens, with Christ being the seventh seventh. That's the Jubilee. And Matthew is saying the freedom, the liberation, the rest, the shalom, the good news of the Jubilee is going to come through a person, through Jesus. He's going to be the fulfillment of what that day pointed to. And there was uh, this one coming. He was the one to whom Jubilee pointed to. He's going to bring about ultimate freedom, ultimate rest, ultimate restoration. So, with Matthew... When, in Luke uh, 4, when Jesus began his ministry, he walks into the synagogue, he takes up a scroll, and guess what he reads? Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, hands it back, and all eyes are fixed on him, and then he says this, today, that scripture is fulfilled in your ears. The jubilee has come in the flesh. The jubilee now is not a set of years and a day, it's a person. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Passover, I know, I know some of you are really hep on, oh, today is the Passover. Passover is not a day anymore, it's a person. The blood of the Lamb, it's Jesus. Pentecost, we don't have to, we don't have to wave palm branches, we don't have to fly to Tel Aviv, we celebrate it right where we are because it's a person. It was a shadow of the reality that was going to come. And the realities come. It'd be like me having a picture of Cindy in my wallet and then her showing up real. Am I going to hang on and hug the picture? Or am I going to hug on to the real thing? So a lot of Christians are hugging on to the shadow and missing the substance of the real. I want to hold fast to that which is good. And that ain't a picture. Some of you are slow. Okay. Well, that's nice, but what does that mean, Rick? How do I access that, and how do I get rest from that, okay? First, the Jubilee is about freedom, and in freedom, you get rest. If you understand that in Christ, you're saved by grace, you, not works, you are loved by the King, you get freedom from needing to prove yourself. Well, I don't, and I don't, and I don't, and I don't. Man, you're just working, hustling. No, we're not saved by any work. We're saved by faith. In Jesus, by grace, through faith. Simple. Something he did, not what I do. And you'll get rest from seeking the approval of other people. If God approves me, I don't need your approval. 
You can put your job down. You can put your parenting skills down as a measure of how you're doing. You can rest from your work and take joy in doing things that give you life because your identity is not rooted in what you do or what you accomplish, but it's rooted in what has been done for me by Jesus. It's it. And Lord knows all the mothers in this house need a Sabbath rest and some freedom. Jubilee is also about the hope of restoration. God's going to restore all that was lost so you can rest from having to be the Holy Spirit and you can release the lives of your loved ones and kids from your hands. Now, sure, you pray for them, of course. Then you can speak into their lives when appropriate as best you can. But ultimately, you find the rest that comes from giving them over into the hands of a God who is more passionate about them than you could ever be and who is passionate about redeeming them and restoring them. So the Jubilee is also about ultimate rest, that you can rest even when you are working. In the movie, I close with this, in the movie Chariots of Fire, two Olympic runners are portrayed. One of them is a guy named Harold Abrams. He says, when I run the 100-meter dash, I run because when that gun goes off, I've got 10 seconds to justify the meaning of my life. In other words, I am working hard so I can feel good about who I am. I wonder how many of us are saying, I do what I do to justify the reason for my existence. But there's another runner named Eric Little, and he says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. I'm just trying to please the God who loves me, delights in me, and has given me this ability. He's not trying to prove anything. So one man is running to be sure of who he is. The other man is running because he knows who he is. And they're both working hard. But one man is always weary even when he's resting, and the other man is always resting even when he's running. There is a rest that comes from being comfortable in your own skin and what God made you to do and using who you are and your gifts for your joy and God's glory. Moms, you have the profound task and privilege of being a steward of a human soul. You are the unsung difference makers in this world. You may not have written any books invented anything new. You may have never been rich or famous, might never be, but you're probably one of the most influential persons in a child's life. Every prayer you utter, every diaper you change, every unknown sacrifice, God sees, God knows, and God will reward. The best gifts for moms are not the ones you and I can give her today. They're the ones only God can give, and he gives them freely, and not just to mom, to all of us. So on this Mother's Day, the gift for everybody. Look to Jesus for your identity. He's our life. He's our hope, our rest, our Savior, our King. And may His grace flow down and cover every single one of you. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.